folks, Olive here. Today I want to talk to you about women with balls, um, feminism, witches and King Arthur. But I'm not going to explain the women and balls situation until midway through, so you have to listen to the rest of the podcast to find out what I'm talking about. Spoilers. So King Arthur is the big boy of, like, all cultural references ever throughout British, Welsh, French, history, everywhere. Um, And I'm not here to talk about whether Guy Ritchie's film was historically accurate because, quite frankly, I did not watch it. Um, I want to look more at the women in Arthurian legend because they kind of get forgotten and we focus on the big hunky men, but we don't really focus as much on the women. Um, And I think it's particularly pertinent at the moment with all of the chaos surrounding women's rights at the moment in America and Northern Ireland and all of the havoc Um, surrounding that. So I think it's important to look back at history at this kind of time. A lot of people have been saying it's like we're back in the dark ages um, with certain political movements that have just been happening. I don't want to get too political on this, but I mean, you know what I'm talking about. But I want to actually go back to the dark ages and see if, if that's an accurate representation, because I'm pretty sure that by the end of the podcast, I am going to have converted you all to thinking that today might be a bit worse. And why am I picking King Arthur for this talk? Well, for the exact same reason why you clicked on this link, because he's super popular. Even as far back as the 12th century, if we look at the Glastonbury Abbey monks, um, with the monastery recently being destroyed by fire, what better way to gain some income is to get some King Arthur pilgrims coming to see the site of the burial of King Arthur and Guinevere. So, I mean... I'm kind of just tapping into a literally a medieval concept of using King Arthur um, to draw people in. I mean, even the literal big boy Tudor dynasty used King Arthur to legitimise their reign. So maybe that's why I'm using him to legitimise my podcast. Um, But you can let me know in the comments. What do you think? Ding, 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 ding. Ding, 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 ding. Okay, I'm getting totally distracted, I'm sorry. Um, I think I need to start this by really briefly answering the question that I get asked a lot. Um, Was King Arthur real? And if somebody really forced me to answer yes or no, then I'd have to say no, technically. Um... The legend of King Arthur has been solidified in literature since the 12th and 13th centuries, but he goes back way further. Um, If we look at Gildas, who was a monk alive during the 5th and 6th centuries, which is the proposed era that King Arthur actually was alive, he wrote about a big battle of Baden, uh, and he attributed the victory to a guy called Ambrosius Aurelianus, who was a Christian and a Roman. Um, So then if we look comparatively at a historian, I use historian in quotation marks, and I'll explain why later, um, called Nennius. He was writing around the 9th century, and he mentions um, Arthur, who was a warrior who fought 12 great battles against the Saxons with a huge victory at Mons Badonicus, which the equivalent is the Battle of Baden, um, and his death during the Battle of Camlan, quotation, in which Arthur and Medrort, later called Mordred, fell. So these battles were dated to the 6th century, even though Nennius was writing centuries later. But it seems to be that these two guys are both talking about the same bloke. Is it a Briton called Arthur, 
or is he a Roman called Ambrosius? The most plausible answer to who is King Arthur is he's probably a culmination of different great men and different great warriors combined into one figure, which makes a lot of sense because um, mythological legendary heroes are always somebody for people to admire, for people to look up to. And if you combine lots of different great men together, I mean, you're going to get a pretty badass hero. And I think that is what we got with King Arthur. Unless he was a guy with a split personality, uh, I don't think that's as likely. So now that we've got the who is he out the way, um, I think it's time to give you a breakdown on some of the big players in the Arthurian literature game. Um, and Big Jeff is like the... The, I don't know, the equivalent of an American football team. I don't know why I'm trying to make that analogy. But he's the big guy. Geoffrey um, of Monmouth in the 12th century. Uh, he was a historian and he chronicled the history of the kings of Britain. And this is when I'm going to explain why historian is quite a problematic word because it's not what we would think of today. He would have harked back to oral histories, different legends he heard, different folklore different traditions and he would have put all of these different things into his history along with facts that had been passed down because books at that time were very rare and very expensive so he would have been one of the early people to kind of write things down so how do you really get history back in the day it's just through word of mouth so we're taking liberties with the word historian but nevertheless he is one of the biggest names on campus um and he wrote about Tintagel and the birthplace of Arthur he wrote about Merlin he wrote about all sorts of different things, and I would recommend checking it out if you'd like to. But he's the big player, the big number one guy um, who kicked this all off. Also in the 12th century was a guy called Chrétien de Troyes. He was a French poet. I probably butchered his name because I do not have a good French accent. I'm not even going to try. Um, but he was the like original gangster who created Lancelot, his backstory, um, and included the Holy Grail in the story. So this is the first time the Arthurian legend kind of gets a Christian twist and it became about heroes and honour and lots of chivalry thrown in. Ooh, thrown in. <laughs> um, then in the 13th century, you get another French tale of the Vulgate Cycle, a series of prose poems based on Lancelot and Guinevere, their romance and more on the Grail. So these like these heavily influenced later Arthurian legends, but I'm going to be honest, I don't speak old French. I don't even speak current French, so I'm not going to delve into huge amounts of detail because I haven't done as much research on them as the other English things. In the 15th century, we get the guy William Caxton, famous printing press creator, um, and he printed Thomas Mallory's More d'Arthur, again, butchered that um, French phrase, sorry. Uh, although that's French, he was a Brit, um, and he created the epic Arthurian romance and really beefed it out into mostly what we know today. Um, and this is a big deal that it was printed because the printing press was the first time that books were widely available. You could print something without having to rewrite it by hand, which would have taken many, many hours. So the fact that Arthurian legend was thrown in the mix there meant that it was really popular and had a massive influence on culture of that era as well as now. Um, and Mallory introduced the, gr the Grail quest to Britain. And he really beefed out the Arthurian legend to what we know today. He gave backstories to loads of the knights. He created loads of new ones. He described the sword and the stone legend, the round table, all of that. So he's a really big player in the game. But I think with Mallory, I'm going to end it. I'm not going to talk about any of the later literature because that would just be overwhelming. 
but they're the big they're the big players in the old game the medieval stuff and when i'm talking about the characters i'm probably going to refer to them as though they existed because that just makes my life a lot easier but i i'm not some crazy person that genuinely thinks that there was a fantastical lady living under a, a, a lake that gave arthur a magical sword i i don't think it's real okay <laughs> so i just need a disclaimer that i'm not crazy uh, it's just easier for me not to say, oh, the character, this, and the character. I'm just going to talk to them. Talk to them? Talk like they're real. So, heads up, please think that's okay. I'm definitely not going to talk to them because then that would be crazy. Okay. Anyway, if we look at the male characters, they're always strong. They're always real big, strong heroes. Um, like Arthur was a powerful warrior king, united the land, banished the enemy. And whether he's Roman or Britain, whatever, he's just always a badass, like regardless of which side you're on. Um, so obviously he's huge. Then there's Merlin, the like, second main character. Um, magical, wise, super clever. Um, sometimes he's caricatured as a bit of an old goat. Personally, I'd probably fancy him most because he's the magical one, but whatever, we're not talking about that. Um, still powerful. Um, the other knights of the round table, all, all, like, what, they're all heroes, and they're all hunky, like, Lancelot, the most handsome man, apparently, ever, um, Gwain, Galahad, Percival, who actually, in some of the original stories, was actually a female, who wanted to fight like her brothers, um, and to all intents and purposes, she became a man, and then a fabled knight, so she could, he could, be an early example of a transgender character, which is pretty cool. But that's I'm getting sidetracked, so that's not what we're talking about. Basically, they're all hardcore noble warriors, and even like Mordred, who's apparently the evil one, he's still really noble and great. So they're all heroes, whoop de doo the men get the good rap. But what about the women? Um, Guinevere, main gal, she plays the role of Arthur's kind of passive wife, who ends up falling for Lancelot, have an affair, it all ends absolutely disastrously, and some tales, somebody dies, but not good. Um, but she's renowned for being incredibly beautiful, and in her stories, this often leads to her getting abducted multiple times. Um, she always has to be saved by a man. And although sometimes she's described as a wise queen, basically her stories are just always the romantic heroine, who's relatively helpless. And is always just determined on which man has fallen in love with her, which man has abducted her, or which man has saved her. So she doesn't really have a strong independent character of her own. Um, her fate's just determined by how men view her, um, which is not cool. Other females, we've got Igraine, Arthur's mother. Um, she was originally married to Gollois of Cornwall, but was falsely seduced by Uther, Uther Pendragon, who was Arthur's father, um, he got Merlin to temporarily and magically turn him into looking like Gollois until he had his wicked way with Igraine because he'd fallen in love with her because she was pretty and apparently that's all men do with pretty women is fall in love with them and seduce them. And then Gollois was killed. Was it Uther? Who knows? That's another plot of deception that I don't want to go into. But basically ended up marrying Igraine, had Arthur, and that's kind of her plot. Just another woman ruled by the impulses of men, it seems. I really don't mean to sound bitter, I swear, I'm just, I'm just retelling you what the stories say. In terms of other women, we can look at Tristan and Isolde, um, they're kind of their own little story in themselves, but they're often entwined with Arthurian legend, um, and 
Isolde was married off to King Mark of Cornwall, um, kind of a politically arranged marriage, but there was some dodgy love potion involved um, and she ended up falling madly in love with Tristan, a hunky knight who dies. I'm sorry if that's a spoiler. It's been around for centuries. It's your fault if you didn't know. Um, And when he ended up dying, she pined away and died of grief because she couldn't deal with living without him. So she kind of gets a bad deal too. It's just... It's just what men love um, about women is that's all they seem to be representing in Arthurian legend. Until we throw in magic into the mix. Um, So I'm going to take Morgan Le Fay as our first heroine of this saga. Um, She's even broken through the Arthurian partiality towards men and she's become a Marvel character. I'm not really au fait with Marvel, so I'm sorry if I don't know much detail, but I do know she's in Doctor Strange and I think she's Elfie and immortal maybe i'm not sure um but she's become a big character in herself she's kind of broken through and is a is a main character so now we're back with big jeff and he's the first person that mentions morgan um and after the battle of camlan when arthur is mortally wounded he's transported to avalon where he meets nine sorceresses and morgan's the leader of these um and he asks to be healed And she benevolently says, yeah, no problem. Just you're going to stay here for a long time if you want to get healed. And he's like, yeah, no biggie. What else am I going to do apart from die? So she agrees to magically restore him to health. Um, Bish, bash, bosh. Nice. She's sweet. So her background harkens to Celtic mythology. Um, She could represent the triple goddess symbol of the maiden mother and the crone because of her different characteristics. Um, She could even represent Morrigan, the Celtic goddess of death. Um, her name could even be linked with the mythical Morgens, who are Welsh and Breton water spirits, which makes sense if she's on the Isle of Avalon. Um, but she might even be based on a real figure. Um, in early Welsh literature, Modron was the daughter of a guy called Avalac, and she was the wife of a man called Urien. Um, and now there was a 6th century Cumbrian ruler called Urien, and the continental romances as well as Mallory describe Morgan as married to a guy called Urians, so there might even be some historical backing to her existence. But at this point, everything seems pretty legit. She seems nice, she seems powerful, she's the leader of the priestesses, she's got magical powers and able to heal someone that's going to die. She seems pretty nice. But it was only later with Mallory and other of the continental um, sources that she gets a bit more of a twisted storyline. She she's evil basically (laughs) she wanted to be queen she's powerful she's ruthless um she hated guinevere as well she sends the green knight of the Gwen and the green knight storyline into arthur's court basically just to scare guinevere to death pretty evil um she was also described as plotting to kill kill arthur kill her own husband urians um she even stole excalibur and gave it to her then lover Acalon in order to fight Arthur and thus kill him. Um, and though her plan is foiled, she ends up keeping the magical scabbard that comes with Excalibur, which means that the wearer basically can't get injured at all. And even though Arthur gets Excalibur back, because he doesn't have his scabbard, that's why he ends up being mortally wounded at the Battle of Camlan. So she kind of does get her way if we're going by that storyline. But then why was she the priestess that would heal Arthur it doesn't make sense. Something doesn't add up here. But before I delve into it in too much detail, I'm going to give you a brief overview of a couple of other figures, um, and then we'll get into the nitty-gritty of why did this woman turn evil? Because I think it's a theme that we're going to see in just a second. 
because it's time to look at the Lady of the Lake conundrum. Um, the title Lady of the Lake has associations with multiple characters. Uh, Nimue, Vivian, Ninian. Confusingly, all of these three names are also just one woman. So ba- basically breaking it down, there's two ladies of the lake. The first one is the one that gives Excalibur to Arthur, the one that's hand appears out of the lake, the representation that literally everybody knows. And if you don't know that, you're living in a hole. Um, and then there's a second lady of the lake. So the first lady of the lake is a kind of fairy-like deity, um, guards the Celtic otherworld, which is kept hidden under an enchantment so mortals don't find it, hence the fact it's a lake. Um, and she's the one that bestows Excalibur upon Arthur. Um, she doesn't actually get much bad rep. She's super powerful, super magical. And that's kind of where it ends. Um, she potentially gets a good deal because she's in it in the story so infrequently. That's kind of her main role. Um, she takes the sword back when it gets chucked in later. But anyway, she is the one that kind of shapes the rest of Arthurian legend. Because even though she's not in it very much, Excalibur features heavily and that's because of her. Um, and the fact that that's one of the most iconic images of Arthurian legend is her hand in the lake. I mean, she had a pretty, pretty big influence, but did not get turned evil. Thank goodness. The second lady of the lake, on the other hand, has a slightly different storyline. So instead of calling her Nimue Vivian Ninian every time, I'm just going to call her Nimue because that makes my life easier and you'll get bored of me saying three names. Um, but she was the du- daughter of a duke. Um, And her storyline is really heavily associated with Merlin because he fell madly in love with her. She was very beautiful and he literally got stalker level obsessed. He followed her absolutely everywhere um, and it drove her crazy. It would be too. But because Merlin was a super powerful man, she hasn't really got that much of sway to say, can you just leave me alone forever? So she decided to say, look, I might like you more if you teach me your magic. Um... Which is a, a clever move, considering he is the man of magic of the whole world at that point. Um, so he, yeah, he agreed. He promised to teach her, and he did. He taught her all of everything he knew. He even built her a magical palace that was enchanted um, by a spell that made it look like a lake. Hence the fact she's a lady of the lake. Um, but basically, he just he didn't take no for an answer. Even though he taught her all this, she still found him infuriating. Um, and he just got pushier and pushier, so she kind of she'd had enough. Um, and walking through the forest one day, she ended up using the magic that he had taught her to entrap him in a tree. Some other stories say it was a rock or even a castle in the sky. Um, but basically, here he remained forever. Thus, she killed him. And because she'd learned all this magic, she ended up becoming um, Arthur's magical advisor, the role that previously Merlin had taken. Um, and she ended up working closely with the king and foiled loads of plots to kill him. So she was really useful and kind of got her own power in her own right in the end. She even raised Lancelot um, after his parents died and taught him to be the honourable knight that he became. Don't ask me about the chronology of this because I literally, um, I get so confused with how, what age, I don't know. Um, and finally, she was one of the nine priestesses that took Arthur to Avalon to be healed after he was dying. So... She ended up with quite a strong, powerful storyline, which is really unusual for the fact that she's a woman. But of course, that all got twisted because it changed to being Nimue specifically entrapped Merlin in a tree. She specifically made him fall in love with her so she could steal all of his magic and take take his place and take his position in court. 
instead of this bloke was really pushy so she used it to his advantage and quite frankly if somebody was that pushy with me if I could trap them in a tree I happily would and I happily would have done that many times in my life so I respect her for standing up for herself um but that apparently later in different medieval tales was not appropriate for a woman to do she ends up being blamed for his passion um, and is cast instead as being manipulative and conniving rather than standing up for herself. Um, annoying, I know. So how did Morgan, the benevolent healer sorceress, become evil? And why did Nimue become almost Machiavellian instead of just standing up for herself? Um, when originally these magical women seemed to be pretty pure of heart, it's only the later stories that describe them as being evil. Why is that? I think the key here is the fact that the later stories also include the Grail storyline, a.k.a. they have a Christian undertone to them, and that seems to be when they turn these women into villains. And, I mean, that runs true in reality. Um, between the 15th century until the late 18th century, around forty to 100,000 people were executed for witchcraft. And just in Europe, that's not even including the Salem witch trials and everything that happened overseas. So... I mean, only 500 of these are British, so relatively speaking, Britain got off pretty lightly. But witchcraft was massively persecuted across the world. It was deemed an act, an act against man rather than God, but then because of Christianity and notions of the devil were intrinsically linked with the practice, then it was an act against man, against God, against literally everybody, which meant that the punishments were severe, um, which meant oh, so many, just so many people died. It just seems such a contrast because modern witchcraft is all about living in harmony with nature and the elements, so it seems such a massive contradiction. Um, but I'm not focusing on modern witches or even those persecuted during the later medieval period. I want to go back a little bit further and take you... I'll take you back to the Anglo-Saxons and the Vikings, the cool guys. Um, and I'm talking mid-5th century until about the 11th century, which is kind of the time that originally Arthur was proposed to be alive in, so I think, it's, I think it's appropriate. Well done me for picking this era to study. So the Anglo-Saxons, first of all, some of my favourite folks, um, they were pagans, they worshipped a pantheon of different gods and goddesses, and most of the information we get from them are from burial records. Because I've studied archaeology, I'm sorry, I'm going to be focusing heavily on burials, so if you really don't like talking about burials, maybe skip forward. Um, but they, they were lavishly decorated. They had loads of grave goods, from jewellery to crockery, and even as grand as Sutton Hoo, the royal ship burial of the late 6th century. Um, and bodies were cremated, they were buried, they were placed in cemeteries or burial mounds, and loads of different positions were totally acceptable, like laying like a fetus, or if you were disrespectfully placed prone down, which meant face down. Um, basically, loads of different ways you could be buried, totally fine and all socially acceptable which means that archaeologists have a whale of a time getting to know the personalities of the people that were buried and obviously i mean does the burial represent the person or does it represent the people and what they thought of the person since that person is dead and thus can't necessarily pick what goes into the grave with them but anyway that's like an archaeological issue so if we forget about that and just quite simply take it as there's loads of different burial methods all is sweet um, Christianity then became a thing, uh, and about the 7th century, the conversion period began. Now, Christian burials were very different. They were very regimented, had to be in the east-west alignment, no grave goods, and had to be in consecrated ground. 
pretty simple. Um, but the conversion period was just, it was really flexible. Um, so you got Anglo-Saxon kings converting to Christianity, literally just for political alliances, but still practicing their pagan beliefs. Uh, the other way around, you get pagan burials and um, with all their grave goods and burial mounds, but you have a gold cross in there as well. So you get a real mix match, mismatch, whatever that phrase is, of different kind of grave styles um, that were all acceptable because they were realizing the transition between pagan to Christianity is pretty fluid. Let's be relaxed about it. And this is the era that we see cunning women, literally some of my favorite people in the world. So I need to kind of chill out about this, but also have to say, I've already started my PhD research. I've already got it all nailed down and accepted and all my professors know. So if you're going to try and steal any of my ideas, it's too late, sister and brother. It's, I'm, already, I'm already on it, so don't try. <laughs> but Anglo-Saxon cunning women were labelled by Audrey Meany in the 80s, so I haven't made them up. I've, this isn't my great discovery, my Einstein moment, sorry. Um, and other archaeologists have kind of investigated them since then. And they seem to be women, mostly, where we can find out from the biological sexing. Otherwise, we gender burials from their grave goods and from their like what we can see of them, really. Um, and most of the time, they look like they're women. Um, and they were folk practitioners of magic, kind of like female priest, almost, um, and healers. And they would have most likely been paid for their service, as though it was kind of a trade, like a midwife would. Um, but were they Christian or were they pagan? We don't know, because their burials are within Christian cemeteries, within consecrated grounds, aligned on an east-west alignment a lot of the time. Um, but they had really richly decorated graves and grave goods. So we see amulets, um, we see different kind of fossils or even exotic animal teeth and fangs and even like a shark tooth, I think, is found in one of the graves. Crazy rare things, basically, that could have no other significance than amuletic or even magical or apotropaic, if I'm going to use a big fancy word. Um, but they also had lots of beads like amber or garnet. They had gold jewellery. Uh, and my favourite thing, which if you've listened this long enough, well done. Um, crystal balls. Women with balls. I personally have a couple of balls. And these crystal balls were often found. They literally look exactly what you would imagine a crystal ball today would look. Relatively small. I'm gesturing now the size of them. That is not useful. You cannot see me. Um, there are some in the British Museum if you want to have a better look if anybody's in London. But they were hung in a silver sling, so they were probably worn from the belt. Um, probably the size of a fig, let's say. Um, and they would have been worn from the belt, carried around with them as a tool of their trade. Um, and quite often they were associated, found with silver sieve spoons. So these were just spoons that had a sieve in the bowl, which makes sense why they're called sieve spoons. Um, probably used for herbal remedies, etc. So all of this seems like they're healers they're somewhat magical or witchy in the sense that we would think of today um but they were totally accepted within christian society or pagan society there was no demarking as different or isolated they weren't kept in a specific corner of a graveyard they were in the same alignment same date so they were very much accepted and because of the the gold and the jewelry they were they were clearly high status they were richly um rich women richly decorated I'm not talking royal, but I'm talking pretty well off and well respected. So 
these were women that were kind of to be reckoned with, really. So all of that archaeological background was to say if cunning women were healers, if they were around during the 5th century-ish, the 6th century, the kind of time that King Arthur was supposed to be alive, thus that makes Morgan Le Fay a cunning woman, a.k.a. a witch. That is why Christianity later made her into a villain because that's when they got persecuted, which makes sense because the later literature thus the Christian period, the later medieval period, were the stories that made her out to be a villain, and the early ones did not. So I think that we've got to the root of the problem here. If we look at Viking culture as kind of a corroboration of my ideas, we see regularly incredibly powerful women wielding magic and divining the future, um, and very respected in their communities. So take Freya, for example, the powerful Vanir goddess who married Odin, the OG of the Aesir. Um, she was the love, she was the love goddess? She was the goddess of love, beauty and fertility and other kind of classic female stuff. But she was also the goddess of death and divination. Um, she was also a vilva, who was a practitioner or form of pre-Christian Norse magic or shamanism. You can say that word however you want. I'm going with this one because Ted the Viking in Glastonbury, shout out to him, told me how to say it. And the other way I said it always made it sound sexual. So I'm going to go with vulva because it makes my life easier. Um, but basically they were completely interwoven with fate and the future. Um, so if you think of if you think of Hercules, Disney Hercules, you know the three hideous women that shared that really gross eyeball. They were the fates. They determined your destiny. It's kind of along that kind of theme. Um, but where the Greeks and Romans believed that your destiny was predetermined and you had no control over it, um, the Vikings believed that what you did in life altered what happened to you in the end. So this is why the Vilva were really important women and they were well-respected within their communities, and they practice a form of cedar magic, S-E-I-D-R. Again, don't at me with the spellings and the pronunciation, please. It's really hard. Um, so they could determine what would happen to you and thus tell you what you needed to change or what you needed to carry on doing in order to get the best outcome for the afterlife. And these women would have travelled between towns. They were real. I'm not talking like these are goddesses. These are real women, and this was a trade. Um, so they would travel between different communities, they would get bed and board and food um, in exchange for their services or coins and etc. Um, <laughs> the way you do get paid with coins. Um, and they weren't persecuted in any way because there was no Christianity involved. This was a completely pagan culture um, and this was, this was the daily part of life and they were well respected. Only women held these roles it was very rare that Freya actually taught Odin this magic because it was solely restricted for women. Um, so, I mean, powerful women with magic that weren't persecuted? Heck yes, more of that, please. Just if Arthurian legend had been Scandinavian instead of British and Celtic, I think the outcome would have been totally different. Like, Guinevere would have been... She would have been so cool. I was Morgan Le Fay would have been, like, goddess-level magical. Um, it would have just been a very different story because Christianity wasn't involved. So I'm getting distracted by how cool it would be if Arthurian legend was Scandinavian. So maybe maybe I'll write that down one day. But basically, I'm going to probably not bombard you with any more female characters because there's hundreds and I haven't got time and nor do you. So I just wanted to highlight some of the stigmas surrounding women of power and women with magic. Um in the early medieval 
slash medieval period and how it changes mainly because of religion and politics. Um, and it's only when that gets involved that women become oppressed and their control is taken away, which kind of mirrors themes that are happening at the moment, which is why I think this is really pertinent to talk about. Um, Morgan Le Fay might have been a powerful healer until Christianity deemed her an evil witch, and Nimue might just have been reprimanding an unwanted suitor until society deemed her manipulative. And, I mean, I don't want to get super political, but blaming women for being in control of their own bodies seems like something that's happening now and totally shouldn't. I don't know why religion has to control politics so much. I don't know why religion has such an effect on these particular women that I'm talking about, but it doesn't seem like it's fair. But I'm not going to... I'm going to stop myself from making this all political because that's not what this is supposed to be about. I meant to tell you stuff and then you make your own conclusions about the politics and the relevance behind it. So if you go and take five minutes after this and sit and think or Google what I'm talking about because then you'll be like, oh my gosh, she was right. But anyway, the next time you hear someone say, oh, it's like we're back in the dark ages or, oh, they're going to be burning witches next. Please instead think of the benevolent Morgan, the magical queen, the original lady of the lake, or the self-controlled Nimue who stood up for herself. Don't think of the demonised versions of the women. Think of the Anglo-Saxon cunning women, the actual archaeological fact behind them. Think of the Viking Vilva who are respected and honoured within society for basically being badass, powerful witches. Because then if you think of these women instead you'll then realise that it wasn't the Dark Ages that were bad. Boy, I think it was everything else that came afterwards. I just wanted to say a big thank you for everyone listening to my first set of podcasts ever. Um, I really appreciate you tuning in and having a listen to what I'm talking about. Um, This talk was originally designed for my speaking debut at Glastonbury Festival um, where I was speaking lots about witches and King Arthur and all of the things you have heard today um, but I really want to start doing more more of this kind of stuff it's kind of given me a bit of a bug so I will be talking more about history and more about mythology and how it's relevant today and all that kind of stuff um, so if you've got anything specific you really want me to talk about please let me know um, my Instagram is at oliveleaf with two F's with an underscore at the end so please hit me up um, and I have to say a massive thank you to my my partner in crime Sydney George Bull Sydney underscore George underscore Bull on Instagram check him out he's amazing um, and he composed me an entire like 45 minutes of backing music for my talk at Glastonbury so he's just wonderful so thank you to him for the music for this podcast and also just for basically all of the music and recording equipment that I'm currently talking on and teaching me how to use it because without him I'd be speaking into my phone and you'd all be really bored so thank you all for tuning in um, and I will see you guys in the next magical episode have a wonderful day and ciao for now